From WHQR Public Media in Wilmington, North Carolina, this is Coastline. I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn. In a fifth-grade book she made about herself, Mallory Cash enshrined a picture of a gavel and wrote she would become a judge. Her teacher said, so you're going to law school. Ten-year-old Mallory, thinking the teacher misunderstood, said, no, I don't want to be a lawyer, I want to be a judge. After her fifth grade teacher explained the two jobs are essentially the same field and both involve law school, Mallory Cash understood her path was set. After high school and then graduation from the University of North Carolina Wilmington, she left the Cape Fear region for the first time for law school, as she had promised herself more than a decade earlier. She practiced law in West Virginia for several years, returned to North Carolina, worked as a contract negotiator for a contract research organization in the pharmaceutical sector, breastfed her first child in the company parking lot, which happened to be on the other side of town, and quit after a year. Now a professional editorial and portrait photographer, her work has appeared in the Knoxville Museum of Art, the New York Times, a plethora of magazines, including Garden and Gun, Our State, and Salt, and her work has appeared in galleries in Tennessee, Virginia, and West Virginia. She collaborates once a month with her husband, Wiley Cash, for an article on North Carolina creators, published by a magazine group across the state. Mallory Cash has also photographed the Avett brothers, North Carolina poet laureate Jackie Shelton Green, and author Jason Mott, among many other luminaries. Today, we'll find out how motherhood and her burgeoning photography business affected her decisions about lawyering. We'll also explore how she made the transition from lawyer to photographer, professionally and psychologically. Because as we'll learn today, it didn't take long for her to develop in-demand status as an artist. But becoming comfortable with her new identity was a longer and far more complicated journey. She joins me now. Mallory Cash, welcome to Coastline. Thank you so much for having me, Rachel. I'm happy to be here. It's really good to have you with us. Now, I apologize to you before we hopped on the air about having to start this conversation with the acknowledgement of how your gender affects your career decisions, as well as this conversation that we're about to have. Your husband, New York Times bestselling author Wiley Cash, has been on this show no fewer than four times. I've never asked him about his wife when discussing his work, and I've only asked about his kids in the context of what he teaches them about creativity and writing. So what does it mean to you that our conversation about your professional life has to include your family. Well, you know, it, it, it's something I notice, of course, and, and it's, it, I notice the absence of it when, when I'm with Wiley, um, you know, at certain events he does. Um, but it doesn't bother me at this point. It's, it's part of the story, and it's just a fact. So um, I'm really happy to talk about it. And, you know, is it frustrating sometimes? Um, but right now, it's, um, it's, it's a huge part of my story, so... So how did motherhood affect some of your, the way you make career decisions? I mean, motherhood was a big factor in you finally deciding to leave your, your corporate lawyer position. 
what, how did that play out for you? What were some of the things that happened along the way to make you say, mm, this isn't going to work? Well, it started kind of right after I got married. Um, we lived in West Virginia, as you said before, and I worked for a big firm. I was a litigator, and it was a it was a good place to be for women. They really did try to prioritize, um, you know, time off and, and, and things like that for uh, maternity leave. But um, I had a few things happen. I was in my 20s, and I got really close to one of the higher-up attorneys, and she was kind of my mentor. Um, and we went to a hearing one, one day, and we, we were – it was like a two-hour drive. And so she kind of – we had a really personal conversation and she was telling me a little bit about her life and how she delayed having kids and you know things weren't didn't turn out exactly how she had hoped in in a lot of ways not not just delaying having kids but um and she she kind of got real frank with me and just said if you don't love this with every fiber of your being every part of it try to get out of this and 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 don't don't get stuck here and don't look back 10 years from now and wonder what you're doing you know, and that really, of course, you know, hit me pretty hard. And at the time, you know, being 20, I don't remember, late 20s, um, you know, you're not, you, time, you, you have all the time in the world. It wasn't too, it wasn't too much of a, you know, a warning. But um, then later, later that month, um, I also experienced um, one of my colleagues coming home, coming back to work from maternity leave. And um, I walked past her office and I could hear her quietly uh, crying while she was pumping breast milk, and I didn't know the sound of the breast pump, and I so I said, "What what's going on in in her office?" And so someone said, "Oh, she's she's just having a hard time adjusting." And so those two things kind of were always in the back of my mind. So when I went back to work um, later, years later after having a kid, I think that um, the, coming downstairs and breastfeeding my kid in the parking lot, all of those things were there, and, and I just said, "You know, this isn't." I don't love this job with every fiber of my being. And, and so I got out of, of both of those things. Wow, that's powerful to have your mentor that you're looking at as this successful, like this is a woman who made it. That's a career trajectory I can follow. Absolutely, is, yeah. To have her say, if you can, get out. Yeah, yeah. I couldn't. I, I was shocked she said that, to be honest. And she stayed, she probably stayed another five or six years after that, Um and she did finally leave, um, but you know, she there was a lot of sadness around that decision. And once she said that to me, she was very personal with me the year 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 and a half I was there, and um, and I appreciated that. It scared me some of the things she said, but um, it 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 did lay a foundation for I, I think for where I am now. Now we're going to go back to when you first realized that you things lit up for you when you had a camera in your hand and you were fascinated by photography. But when you made the decision to leave that position in the corporation, had you started making money from your photography yet? No, no, actually, I I wasn't even considering turning to photography. I, I actually took that took that leap, not knowing exactly what I was going to do. Um, I didn't it's strange because my husband's a writer, but at the time, I didn't know that could be a career. I didn't know I could make a living or that it was something that could be taken seriously. Of course, I knew there were professional photographers, but, you know, in my mind, it's like, oh, those are those people in New York City or or wherever else. So it didn't really occur to me until until shortly after I left my job. So go back further than that. When do you first remember thinking, taking pictures 
is amazing. <laughs> I love this. I I know exactly. It was I was in fifth fifth grade actually, which is strange because that's yeah. when I did the gavel. I didn't think about that, um, so I should have drawn a camera instead. But um, <laughs> or maybe uh, both. Yeah, we'll, that's and true. we'll get to that's that. That's true. Yeah. Um, I went to California uh, with my dad and my sister, and I had a little camera they bought me, and it you could change it from panoramic to regular, and and it had this like special film, and so I had maybe six rolls of film that I got to take with me, and. It was sort of the first time I remember that it was all my choice. I'm the, I'm the youngest of three, and so there weren't a lot of things that were just mine, but that roll of film was mine, and I took the most ridiculous picture. I actually still have the roll, the first roll of film I ever took, and it's like a pigeon, and what I was, thought was so arty, and, you know, and all <laughs> these, all these, like, you know, things in San Francisco that I took pictures of, but I remember getting the, getting the film back when I got home. There was a half hour photo right near our house and seeing that and just it just felt I just remember thinking like I made these decisions. This is this is what I did. This is mine. Um, And I just loved it. Um, And it was filmed then, of course, so it was a little slower, you know, slower gratification. But um, I, I, I can sort of continued on from then. And so then fast forward, you're married and you have your first child and you suddenly are fascinated by your daughter's growth and you're worried you're going to miss it. And so you start yeah. photographing her? Ab- yes, absolutely. I think, you know, having a kid uh, is emotional just anyway. And, and of course, there's hormones involved. There's exhaustion. <laughs> there's all these things. And I remember she was she was born a few weeks early and she was barely five pounds. So she was this tiny thing. And so everything she did was miraculous because she was so small and, and I just couldn't believe she was a human being moving, moving and breathing. And so I just thought, I want to, I, I just want to remember how I feel and remember how she looks. And I went to Best Buy and just said, I need a camera that like, I click the button and it, and it takes the picture. Like I didn't even know the language to say, a, you know, a DSLR or whatever. And the guy was like, well, tell me what you mean. And I said, my camera when I press it, there's a delay, and I can never get the shot. And he was like, oh, here. And he and he showed me, and I said, great, and I bought it. And that was my first camera. And I um, started learning from there, and I spent hours and hours every night for months and months just trying to become literate in how to use it. I love the way you talk about what drove you to do that. You wanted to document the way she made you feel. Yeah. So how do you do that? Like, how does... The way, and and I guess this is looking through an artistic lens. But what does that mean in terms of how you take her picture? Um, well, f- for me, I mean, it's something that you know, it just brings you back. It's like smelling something when you smell something, and it brings you back to something. For me, it's just obviously it's it's different for everybody. But I remember I took a picture of of my daughter on the bed, and I was standing above her, and I kind of lost my balance, so it was a little bit blurry. But part of her foot was in focus. And I was like, that's how kind of how everything feels. Like it felt like a like a dream or something like a dreamlike state. And I remember thinking like this is kind of how it feels. Um, it's like when you choose the perfect words and you, you know, give someone a statement, and you say this says exactly what I want to say. And I think sometimes I can show people a picture and say this is the truth of what I saw. This is how I felt. Um, and sometimes people feel the same thing. Sometimes they don't. You're listening to Coastline. It's an exploration with editorial and portrait photographer Mallory Cash. After this short break, 
We'll hear how her photography business grew from there, and we'll find out how she thinks about her subjects when she's working with them. Stay with us. I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn for Coastline. Listening to Coastline, I'm Rachel Lewis Hilburn. Mallory Cash started her professional life as a litigator. She eventually moved to contract negotiations and then photography. Wait, what? Yes, Mallory Cash started taking photographs of her own kids. Other people soon started asking her to photograph their kids, and she is now an in-demand editorial and portrait photographer. So how did that happen, Mallory? You just you told us about discovering taking pictures as because you wanted to document how your own daughter made you feel and mm-hmm. her development. So how did that then translate to other people saying, hey, get my kid over here? Well, so it uh, social media, really. Um, I found out what Instagram was right before I gave birth. Some A friend of mine asked if I was on there, and I didn't even know what it was. This was eight years ago. And so I, I signed up and made a page, and I um, every day posted pictures. For the first year of my daughter's life, I posted a couple pictures every single day just to kind of ch- say, you know, what she was doing today or how big she was or or just a picture with, with no caption. And um, so that's kind of how people I was posting so much that um, people started seeing it, um, seeing it that way and sending me messages, you know, liking the pictures and then kind of asking, like, you know, I know you just had a baby, but do you do this? Like, is this your job or could you could we do a trade or could I pay you? Or so those kind of offers came in, not not incredibly quickly, but, um, you know, here and there. And then and, and I didn't even consider it initially. I. I just kind of laughed like, oh, that's, you know, no, that's just, but eventually I kind of started to say, hmm, maybe I should think about this. Yeah. And so then you moved into photographing, um, for lack of a better word, luminaries like author Jason Mott, whose star has really been on the rise and the North Carolina Poet Laureate and the Avett Brothers. How, How did you go from just people's kids to that? Well, I think, I, you know, I, I started doing children and then families, um, some maternity stuff. I photographed two births, actually, a, a C-section and, and a um, more traditional birth. And when I did that, the, photographed the birth, I thought, oh, gosh, this is, this feels real. And I like the documentary aspect of it. And so I, I kind of like my, my photography career kept changing and I kept figuring out what I liked. And um, I realized pretty quickly that I either wanted to be a fly on the wall documenting, or I wanted just a one-on-one portrait experience. And I, I loved portraits, portraiture, and um, I was—I felt like that's what I could do. If I was one-on-one, I could, I could, I could get a picture of of someone's kid that would make the parent cry. And I loved doing that. Um, and so the portrait stuff kind of kept going. And then um, I can't even remember the the first 
the first one that we ever did, Wiley and I ever did, was some writers in town. So it was people we knew. And it was kind of like, hey, do you guys want to be in this? And then it just kind of went from there. And so how does that work when you get a call and a manager says, hey, I want you to photograph Seth Avid because he's got a new album coming out or however that works? Do you prepare ahead of time? Do you research Seth or do you show up and just start talking with him? How does that unfold? Um, I I typically don't like to research um, research people at all. I, I like to see what they look like. I always like to see what they look like. And then if it's if it's somebody who, you know, is a public figure, I always just look to see. I always Google their name and portrait just because I want to see what they're putting out there. Um, and it's usually usually fine that, you know, public figures have maybe two or three pictures in circulation that they tend to use over and over again. So I just like to see how people like to be photographed. And sometimes I'll ask people that when I get there. But usually I can tell based on their social media or Im- or Google images search that, you, you know, what they're putting out there. And so that's pretty much all I, I like to do. I don't want to, I don't want to be a fan. I don't want to like go in there and ask for autographs or pictures. It's very professional. And then, but it ends up turning personal. It always does with, we always, I always have great conversations with people and, and they tend to share a bit of themselves, um, which is amazing. And that's part of the process for you, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and, uh, you know, even last year, I might not have said that that was the case, but it, I'm realizing it is. And, and I think I don't like being photographed truly to my core. I'm not comfortable in front of a camera at all. And so I think the personal conversations I have with people, it's sort of my way to be, you know, have some reciprocal vulnerability because people getting photographed, I mean, that's a vulnerable, intimate thing. For you know, for me anyway, and so I think that's kind of why I started doing that because I wanted people to say I wanted to be like I'm. I would never be willing to let someone photograph me, but I'm asking you these questions, and I'm in your. A lot of times you're in people's personal space, um, and so I just started having conversations with people, and most people actually really like it because they don't have to pose. It's simply a conversation. I just take pictures during the conversation. And so do you find you get better stuff yes. when they're just being themselves that Absolutely. way? Absolutely. People almost always tell me, oh my gosh, now that's what I hoped I looked like, or that's what I, you know, things like that. I, t- <laughs> I took a picture of um, of an author named Annette Klopsaddle, and she, Wiley saw her, her the portrait I did of her for The Bitter Southerner, and He's like, I want do one. I want one like that. I want one like that. He's like, I want it to just be confident and and so you know I t- I've taken Wiley's picture too, which is a little trickier when I know someone well. It's it's not as it's not quite as magical. But um, why do you have such a hard time being in front of the camera? What does that mean to you? And what are you afraid of? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I I don't know. To be honest, um, I just think. It's just so intimate. I think it just feels really vulnerable, and and some people are okay with that. And I'm just, um, I'm just not. I don't. I don't know why. I wish I did know why, because I, I need some updated photos of myself. <laughs> 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 people ask for them, and I'm like, uh, here's one of me from 1997. <laughs> so when you're photographing, uh, so you photographed oyster shellfish fishermen. She calls herself a fisherman, Anna Shalom, mm-hmm. um, who we know, and we're going to have a Coastline episode about her. Oh, great. Um, yes. So when you go out with someone like her, how is your approach 
different in the marsh, in full sunlight, with a woman, I don't know if that's different, versus sitting with Seth Avett in his living room while he plays his guitar and sings. <laughs> you know, actually, it's not that different. Um, and the uh, man, woman, singer, painter, chef, it's pretty much the same for me anyway. Um, and a lot of what I do when I photograph, there's a lot of watching and a lot of observing. So despite us, despite me saying that we're having these conversations, which we are, um, you know, sometimes if someone's playing an instrument or painting or harvesting shellfish, I'm also just watching, um, watching what they're doing. And so there, there's a lot of, there can be a lot of silence, which is kind of a beautiful thing too. And you know, with Anna, we I watched her and then would ask a few questions. And there was um, a writer, John Wolf, was with with me as well, and he um, he and I just kind of sat back and then we would ask her a few questions. And I didn't, I don't really pose people. Um, occasionally, I'll say, you know, hey, can you can you turn your eyes to me, or can you can you just turn away from the sun, or can you, you know, things like I do adjustments, but I never, I never, I never pose people. It was hard for you to say that you are a photographer for a long time. Yes. And it sounds like there were some kind of incarnations of how you would identify yourself, that you would start saying, yeah, okay, I'm a photographer, but I'm also a lawyer. I'm a lawyer by trade. So, yeah. And, you know, I'm making a little light of that, but it was important to you to keep your lawyer title for a while. Yeah, I think it was a, I think it was a security blanket or something like that. I, 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 you know, I would say, oh, I'm taking a year off. I had this, I had this magic phrase of I'm taking a year off taking because it, it just felt like it legitimized what I was doing um, you know and, and of course eventually that year was up and, and it's been eight years now but um, and, I, and we have two kids so we, you know during that time I also got pregnant again and but I found myself saying oh I, you know I'm a lawyer but I'm taking a year off and I'm doing some photography stuff I'm do like I, I found ways of minimizing it without even realizing I was doing it by saying I'm, I'm doing a few things or I'm doing a on the side or, you know, those kind of phrases that, um, but eventually, you know, I remember getting to the point where I met somebody and didn't, didn't say anything about being a lawyer. And it was just that I was a photographer. And I remember thinking like, oh my gosh, that I'm finally ready to let go of that. Cause that has nothing to do with my worth or what I'm, you know, who I am. Um, and I remember being really happy that I, that I felt, felt comfortable leaving off that that part that I thought I needed to legitimize myself. You're listening to Coastline. My guest today is Mallory Cash, an editorial and portrait photographer whose work has appeared in countless magazines. It's landed on the pages of the New York Times, the walls of various art galleries, and she's sought out by luminaries as wide-ranging as the Avid brothers, Jackie Shelton Green and Jason Mott. You said you finally reached a point where you could let go of identifying yourself as a lawyer because that's not where you needed to find your self-worth. Right. How, how, did you, how did you get there? Like if someone else was sort of struggling with that and leading with their academic or career credentials, uh, how do you get to a point where you recognize your self-worth is found somewhere else? Um, I, I think for me it was just finding a little, a little bit of independence um, and, 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 and really doing something that I cared about because taking a photo of someone and having a portrait in a, ma a big magazine or online for me feels really personal. I, I, despite the fact that I'm not in the photo, 
it feels like something part of part of part of me and you and when I was a lawyer drafting documents or even going to court that felt it felt separate and so photography is kind of all mixed up in one about who I am and and what I what I care about and what I see and what I feel and so when I realized that um, that's when I was able to let go of the lawyer stuff so I think it's just a matter of finding finding what whatever that is for you and you said that so you passed the bar first in West Virginia. Right. And then you took the bar in North Carolina. I did, yeah. Passed that. <laughs> yep. And only practiced for a year after you passed the bar in North Carolina. And right. that used to be a painful fact for you. Why? Well, and, and it's funny because it, personally, it actually really wasn't. Um, I mean, studying for the bar exam is it's pretty miserable and it's expensive and it's mentally exhausting and scary um but for me it was more the comments people i got so many comments you know when people i don't tell people at all that i went to law school anymore and and sometimes they find out but people just couldn't accept that you would do all that work get to the point or what people have said to me what a waste oh wow what a waste or oh my gosh or what happened and nothing happened i mean Car Something. accident happens to you. Not like I don't. It doesn't. Nothing happened to me. I actually worked really hard to get where I am. So it it, it almost felt like people treated it like it was sort of a consolation. Photography was a consolation prize of like, oh well, what happened? Or it's like I didn't get disbarred. I just <laughs> I just chose a different path. But there were elements of that that you really did love. You had an internship with the DA's office. Yes. You worked with drug court in West Virginia. Yes. Is that right? Absolutely. And that really kind of captured your imagination and heart yes. in a way? Absolutely. I I did an internship with the DA's office here in Wilmington. And um, after your second year of law school in North Carolina, you can actually try cases and do everything a real assistant district attorney can do. So I was able to do that under the supervision of, of someone, of course. And I got some really great experiences um, and saw saw a lot of trials, a lot of hearings, a lot of interactions with the public. Um, and then I clerked for a judge in West Virginia for two years, and he was sort of a pioneer in the treatment court realm, and he created these drug and mental health courts that saved, saved so many lives and um, kept people out of jail. And I watched, I watched it work, and I watched people weep with you know, being grateful. And I, it changed how I viewed addiction. It changed how I viewed people. Um, and I spent a long time watching people and observing people. And um, that, I think that goes into how I photograph people now, because I think I realize that there's no good, there's no good and evil. There's everyone, you know, has the chance to kind of do the right thing, do the wrong thing. There's, there's bad people that do good things and vice versa. And, and so I think that is kind of how I, I still approach people. I just kind of watch and see their body language and see, try to figure out who they are. And um. Yeah. And so going back to this idea of you being a lawyer, a corporate lawyer, and, you know, making corporate lawyer money, which is, <laughs> yeah. Which is something. Yeah, yeah. You, you think about advice that you got from your grandmother, Yes. Yeah. So my grandmother, who who lives in town, she, um, my grandfather, is, painted how was a house painter for for many years. Owned his own business. My grandmother ran his business. They, you know, 
were amazing. I, I don't know how they did that for so many years, but my grandmother pulled me aside right before I went to college and she said, please, please finish, like go to college, get an education so you can have your own money and so that you can leave if you ever need to or if you ever want to. And you know, she never, we never talked about it. We still haven't uh, talked about it again, but, she, but I remember her, the urgency in her voice when she told me that. And so, yeah, I struggle with that sometimes. The lawyer money and the photography money is, is not the same. <laughs> um, so, um, you know, sometimes I wonder, I think that's been part of the struggle. I have two little girls and I'm, and I'm thinking, you know, am I setting a good example? Am I this like strong, independent woman? Or did I take a step back, you know, because I'm taking a job that I'm not making quite as much money? And, you know, all of these things swirl in my mind. And, you know, we talked about the gender thing at the beginning of this, but, you know, that's something I, I suspect that women wrestle with and, and most men probably haven't thought about. Um, yeah. And so wh- how do you think about that now? Because you did say to me at one point, you're you're always trying to affirm that you did the right thing yeah. by leaving lawyering and getting into photography. And it sounds like you were following your heart where your kids are concerned and also where your own creative fascinations are concerned. You talk about photography as being the picture is actually still part of you. It's, yeah. it's something that is an expression of you, even though you are not the subject. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I, I um, yeah, and, and you know, making that decision when you have kids, it kind of changes changes a lot. But I, I do find myself keeping score. You know, when I, when my children went back, I recently had a had a, a job opportunity in the in the legal world of a job I really wanted or had previously really wanted, and um, I, t- I turned it down because I, I just knew realistically um, I'm the, I don't want to say primary caregiver, but my husband travels every week, and so I'm kind of the constant, and I just knew realistically what, what our lives would be like if I had to constantly find help, and the first week of school, both my kids are sick, and they missed two, day, two days the first week and a day the second week, and so I found myself kind of keeping score, like, ah, oh, yeah, see, this would have been really hard if I, had, if I was a lawyer, and this would have been, and so I don't know if that's the healthiest, th- healthiest thing to do, but um, I do find myself doing, and I, I don't necessarily think I need to anymore because I'm pretty confident. You know, I have a freedom mentally, uh, if, you know, that I've never had before. And so, but it's just, I think maybe the gender stuff, it just creeps in to say like, is this, you know, are you financially independent? Is this the right thing? Are you, you know, all of these things come in um, to play, you know, but by and large, I'm at a point now where I, you know, I feel like this was the right thing. Um, but my daughter, unfortunately, Last year, one of her friends somehow knew I was a lawyer. I guess their parents told her. And she came home and said, hey, Pip said you're a lawyer. Is that right? And she was like, that's so cool. And I was like, oh. (laughs) So I was like, I just got comfortable not being a lawyer. So that kind of, you know, sent me back wondering. So you're teaching your kids certain things about what it means to be a strong, independent woman, both through your life and through your words. What what do you think? What message do you think that they're getting right now? Um, you know, Wiley and I talk about that a lot, and, and you, I I don't know as far as strong, independent woman wise, but they do think they do. They have both actually said they think I'm both physically and mentally stronger than Wiley. So there's <laughs> there's something. <laughs> 
You're listening to Coastline. My guest today is photographer Mallory Cash. In the next segment, we'll find out why she says she's a better person for having photographed some of her subjects and how she got a job working with a reporter who had a Pulitzer grant. We'll be back after this short break. Stay with us. I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn for Coastline. Listening to Coastline, I'm Rachel Lewis Hilburn. Mallory Cash has photographed both Avett brothers separately, North Carolina poet laureate Jackie Shelton Green, author Jason Mott, and her work has appeared in Garden and Gun, The New York Times, Our State, O. Henry, among many other publications. She's also had her work featured in galleries in Virginia, West Virginia, and Tennessee. Now, just before we went to break, you were talking about the conversations that you have with your husband about what you're teaching your kids, not just through your words, but the example that you're setting. And so we know the two girls see you as the stronger <laughs> one. Sorry, Wiley. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but, but there are probably other lessons they're getting. Yeah, absolutely. I, you know, I think that we hope, and, and I think that they do see that you can make your own way and you can do what feeds you. And um, and we've done that. We've tried to really show them. Um, I mean, we read a ton in our house and both girls, one wants to do something in music and one wants to, to be a writer. And obviously, you know, that's possible for her or, or seems possible to her because she's got Wiley to look at. And both girls at one point wanted to be photographers too. And so those kinds of things really do give me hope that it, at least they're thinking outside the box. And, and if they are lawyers, you know, I, that's great if they, if that's, you know, if it feeds them. And definitely um, there were things that, that did feed me about being a lawyer. But um, so I think that they really see us doing what we love and doing what matters to us. And, and that's kind of what's important to us. You talk about doing what matters to you. You photographed a guy who was a pastor who you said he was trying to learn Spanish right. to speak to a congregation. Mm-hmm. And there was a mobile bookmobile that gave away free books, free dinner. Tell us about that day and photographing this guy and what you took away from that. This was in Murf- Murfreesboro, which um, and the it was called the Cultivator Bookmobile, I believe is what it's called. And so they would partner with in churches or community centers and so this one happened to be at a church the night that I went and so they had this huge table of books English and Spanish books there were a lot of kids there it was kind of like the traditional like spaghetti dinner type church um, gathering and so the, there were I don't know maybe 50 50 people there and um, the pastor uh, was telling us how he um, used to have a translator and would, would talk, you know, would, would speak in English. And, of course, the translator would translate in Spanish. And so finally someone in his congregation said, you should be the one speaking to us directly in Spanish. Like, we can help you learn and 
You, and so he just said, okay, well, they've asked. And so he started learning and, and we watched him give this speech and he, you know, did it in both languages. And he, you could just see his brain working, trying to translate and think of words. And occasionally he would, you know, lean over and say, how do you say, you know, whatever word. And um, I was so moved by that because he had a wife and children and, you know, I can't imagine um, how much free time he has, you know, probably none. And so to see this man doing this because he cares about his community and cares about his congregation and all of these people were able to get books and they had this community space, um, I left feeling like a better person. And so often, you know, the things Wiley and I collaborate about, we both feel that way. And, it, and in some way, we bring something of that into our lives or um, or at least the intention to, you know, be better, do better, or um, we, we've just been enriched by all the people we meet. It almost feels selfish because we've just met the most amazing people. It sounds like with with each assignment, you almost bring back part of that person with you. Like yeah. That, so, so specifically, how does this pastor now, in, who's inside of you, inform how you see the world or what you're doing in the world? Um, I mean, I think watching him give that give that that speech in two languages um, when he clearly was nervous. I mean, and really that I don't know. It's just it's it's I just think about that sometimes when I'm struggling with something or I'm nervous about something. I think this guy is up there speaking another language because he cares about these people. You know, I can come on the radio <laughs> you know <laughs> and you could see his nerves yeah oh yeah. yeah 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 and it's interesting because you've talked also about the confidence gap in the genders mm-hmm. and th- there have been all kinds of studies done to uh to document that I mean it's it's undeniable and right. I think um when we spoke you quoted a statistic to me on the phone that is I, there were a couple of well-known national and international news anchors, women who collaborated on a book by that mm-hmm. title, I think. And this was something, it, well, why don't you go ahead and explain um, when um, women will apply for a job versus right. when men will apply for right. a job. Yeah, I've told this, I've, I've said this to my girls and, and, you know, I don't, off the top of my head, the number might not be right, but it's, I've said something to the to, to the effect of that, you're going to have little boys in your class and they're going to raise their hand every single time whether they know the answer or not. And they might yell the wrong answer out and they'd be like, oh, oh well. But the little <laughs> girls are going to say, no, I need the right answer. I need to make sure I'm right before I raise my hand. And then they and then they often miss the chance to say the right answer. And, you know, the, the, the statistic that you mentioned about women applying for jobs, they often wait. Women will look at a job ad and say, oh, I don't 100 percent fit this or I'm not. I haven't done X, Y and Z so that so they don't. They want to be 100 percent sure that they can get this, whereas a man will be like, well, I'm, I kind of qualify. <laughs> I'll, I'll apply. You know, and, and the numbers back it up. I don't know the number. I don't want to yeah. say the wrong numbers off the top of my head. But, you know, it just shows that um, how often women don't take a chance because they, they want it to be perfect, whereas men have been in, encouraged, you know, implicitly, explicitly, you know, however, to just go for it. And, not, and, and, and that failure doesn't matter. But women have to be perfect and say the right thing and get the right answer each time. So that's something you're talking with your girls about, too. Yeah. You're very oh, aware of. Yeah. And are they at an age yet where you can see that showing up? Can you see those tendencies or or not so much? Um, 
Yeah, a little bit. Um, I think they're more confident than I ever than I am now, probably. And and I'm hoping it's because we're having these conversations. But I'm I'm watching them recognize foolish behavior and and some people. And then my my youngest daughter will be like, that's ridiculous. I'm not I'm not. She just does not suffer fools. And I and I love that. (laughs) And I love that. So I'm hoping maybe the cycle is somewhat broken, maybe. You talked about taking your eight-year-old daughter into a bookstore recently-ish, and she was noting the difference, the gender differences in the sections. Yeah. What did she see? Yeah, she, um, so, you know, some bookstores have some toys and books, you know, mixed together. And so she was really, like, extremely annoyed and said, why do the boys get all the good stuff? you know, gesturing towards the boy section. And there's, of course, science and dinosaurs and robots. And why do the girls get this stuff? And she's pointing at um, a makeup set. And, and there's, like, fake nails and makeup. And, and, and she's like, that's ridiculous. She was like, why? They, she's like, they just want us to have fake nails so that we can't build stuff. And I was like, oh. you know what? That's interesting. <laughs> so she 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 feels it. And um, I love that she, that she pointed that out. And I said, well, just go over to any section you want and pick whatever you want because you don't need stick-on nails. <laughs> <laughs> now, you got a call from Melba Newsom, mm-hmm. who is a Pulitzer Grant recipient journalist. Mm-hmm. She was doing a story on the Gullah Geechee Corridor and how descendants of enslaved Africans who, who live along that corridor are more impacted by severe weather, climate change, right? Than yeah. other people. Yeah, she's she's amazing. Um, she's actually going to be in town in a few weeks. But she, the work she's done, um, climate change, environmental justice topics, um, it, it, it's pretty astounding. Um, but yeah, I got to go down to Charleston and meet um, a few people in, in the Gullah Geechee community, and um, it was a it was sort of. I think it was the first real environmental type story that I did, but it's definitely opened something up in me. Um, she just hustles, though. She has so many projects going at once, and I'm so inspired by that. And so we're, we, you know, we're still working together, and and I hope it continues. And some of the, I looked at some of the photographs that are part of that story, and they're they're extraordinary. Again, I mean, oh, thank you. some of people and some mm-hmm. of just. It looks like floodwaters coming across a road. Can right. you talk about what you saw when you were there with her? Yeah. Um, so this was, um, there, it's called Mosquito Beach, and it's a really small area, and it was um, a predominantly um, black community and black beach, and uh, it's 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 starting to flood, and there's a lot of things going on in Charleston that they're fixing areas, um, of course, where the, where the mansions are, and then that's causing some issues down, you know, down down the waterway um, and effect disproportionately affecting certain communities. But yeah, I drove around and and I had a tide app on my phone, so I knew when the tide was going to be the highest. And so, kind of drove up and down the roads right near Mosquito Beach. And sure enough, they were you know they were starting to flood, and there was no storm, there was no rain. Um, you know, half the road was covered. And so, I don't know what it's going to be like soon, but. Um, it was pretty uh, pretty shocking to stand there and watch watch the tide come in on on the road I was on, and you also had 
uh, some pictures. Uh, there's one man particularly who stands out. You just had mm -hmm. some great photographs. Can you tell us about this guy and how you were capturing him? Yeah, his nickname is, is Cubby, and he is the unofficial mayor of, of Mosquito Beach. And he, you know, I've, 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 I've been learning about, um, you know, what I do, editorial, photojournalism, it kind of straddles the line, I think. But I'm learning that it's important to put the time in and get to know people. And I did that with him. And I came back the next day, and he kind of gave me his verbal free pass. And I immediately, when you go into a community, people know when you're not from there. You know, it, it can be any community, they, they, they see your car and they're like, she, she doesn't live here. It's just, it's such a small, and that happens all the time, you know, all over the state when I travel. But I, I came in and there was a woman who didn't want me there photographing. And I said, oh, hey, I'm working with Cubby. And she was like, oh, man, come on in and like got me some lemonade. And so it, it was such a good lesson on, you know, genuinely getting to know people and, and putting the time in instead of just I'm so aware of it, just people coming in and wanting to take, take, take and then leave without really understanding who people are or or what's going on. You also worked with Global Connections mm -hmm. that brought in some refugees from Afghanistan. Yeah. They made it out of that country earlier this year and saw the beach for the first time. They did. Describe that experience. So, and Global Connections was started by um, Catherine Polk, who, who's, who's amazing. She's, I don't know how she does everything she does. Um, but yeah, I, she told me that about these families coming in. And it was interesting because they were initially in Texas, these two separate families who didn't know each other. They met at the facility they were, where they were in Texas. And then they coincidentally both came to Wilmington. So they did, they knew each other, which was nice. But she said, yeah, I'm going to take them to the beach. And, they, and I said, have they ever seen it? She's like, no, they've never seen the beach. And they're, you know, really excited. Only there was a little language barrier, but I said, I was like, I can come and take pictures if you want. She was like, that'd be great. So I kind of just inserted myself into that. Um, but I was with them for a few hours and let them let them use my cameras, which made me very nervous. There were two teenage boys who were very interested in using my camera. So I was like, oh, my God, please don't drop it. But, um, yeah, and, and I wish I could share the pictures. I can't, but she has them, and she made a book for them. And, and so it was it was pretty, pretty life-changing for me. Yeah. So when you think back to what you've done so far, it it sounds as though the more journalistic stuff is – sort of what really draws you. Yeah. How is that different from portraiture? And is it different? I, I wonder. I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. And I, I asked somebody that recently, and, and they, didn't, they didn't have a great answer for me either because I think, I think there's a lot of overlap, um, to be honest. So I, I don't know that there's a well-defined difference, but um, I think what I do leans on the spectrum of you know, pose portraits to, to raw photojournalism. I, I lean more towards photojournalism, but it's probably a spectrum. Is there a chance you will ever go back to lawyering? Yeah, I mean, I I have learned <laughs> I have learned to to just never say never because if you had asked me eight years ago whether I'd be here, I would have said no, no way. So. I don't know. I mean, I'm really passionate about the drug court um, that I worked in, and New Hanover County has a great one. So I'd love to get involved with that possibly in, in, some, in some way in the future. But right now, I just know this season of life, somebody said that recently, I like that, this season of life is 
I, I'm where I should be with photography. So, and what's next for you? I don't know. I I um, I, I was considering possibly going back to school, and um, I haven't really told many people that because I, I'm afraid people are going to say, oh, geez, what you know. But I I I'm really getting serious about the idea of photojournalism and really thinking about p- pursuing a formal education in that. So, you know, our lives are a little crazy, so we're going to have to, we're, we're kind of talking about that possibility right now. So we'll see. Yeah. And when you think about uh, women that you photographed, I mean, I asked you earlier in this conversation if there was a difference in terms of how you think about it. But we've talked in this conversation so much about gender differences, mm-hmm. the confidence gap, how much energy women put into thinking about what they look like versus possibly men. Not that men don't think about that. But does that land on you as a photographer in any way when you're photographing a woman? It, yes, I think, I think actually it does. I, I think that I'm more, um, I don't know what the word is, but I'm more determined to make women look to, to, to make the picture flattering. I'm more determined to do that for women than I am for men because I do think women want that. And, and unfortunately, you know, like you said, that they're the ones they're constantly thinking about it. And I find myself wanting to, you know, appeal to that. And that's this edition of Coastline. Mallory Cash, what a pleasure having you with us Thank today. Thank you so much for Thank having you. me. Yes. Coastline's technical director is Ken Campbell. Jonathan Fernell engineered this episode. Coastline is a production of WHQR Public Media. Continue the conversation with us on Facebook. You can find us at WHQR's Coastline, hosted by, or just send an email at coastline at whqr.org. You can find the episode at our website, whqr.org, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn for Coastline.